Innovation happens at breakneck speed in digital health. In fact, things change so fast it can be tough to stay in the know. I looked and looked for a podcast that was dedicated to showcasing the hottest products, companies, and trends, and it didn't exist. So I created it. This is the Bleeding Edge of Digital Health, and I'm your host, Mike Moore. Welcome to another episode of the Bleeding Edge of Digital Health. Really excited about today's guest. We've got Lloyd Diamond, CEO of Pixium Vision. Lloyd, how are you doing today? Good, Mike. How's it going? Fantastic. Fantastic. I appreciate you agreeing to come on the show. So yeah, this is a technology I've been following for a while now and, and got to see Lloyd's presentation down at uh, LSI and immediately knew uh, it was a technology I wanted to get uh get on the show and feature for the audience. In short, I guess the best way to put this is uh, the tagline is bionic vision for those whom have lost their sight. As I was kind of looking at this technology before you and I started talking, in my mind, Lloyd, I kind of, the way I made sense of it is it's a little bit digital health meets deep tech meets med tech. If all three of those had a baby, this might be what, what came out of it. Uh, it's part wearable, part brain computer interface, part software as a medical device, and part neuromodulation. So really complex technology, but certainly um, super exciting. So glad to have you on. Really excited for the audience to get uh, a flavor for what you guys are doing. As we usually do, let's go ahead and just get started. Uh, definitely excited to get into the tech, but let's go ahead and, and have you just kind of give a little story background to the origin story and of the company and then how you got involved and also you guys are based out of Paris, France, so would love to hear how that that whole thing transpired. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Mike. Thanks for for having me here. I'm I'm kind of excited, really, to share the Pixium story. But maybe, yeah, I'll I'll give a bit of history on the company. So, you know, it started back in 2011, but the real impetus for sight restoration and sort of bionic vision dates back probably over 20 years or so. There have been so many research projects in the area, but specific to Pixium, it started out of the Vision Institute here in Paris, which was the creation of a well-known professor in ophthalmology by the name of José Alain Sahel. And José has really a lot of research and product development credits to his name. He's currently the head of ophthalmology at UPMC uh, Medical Center in Pittsburgh, and of course, is a faculty at the university. And so 2011, when they started developing a bunch of different technologies and drug therapies and gene therapies for vision loss, of course, dry AMD was one of the central focuses. Dry AMD and retinal degenerative diseases such as retinitis pigmentosa which really don't today have any good solutions, even today with respect to site restoration. And so in 2011, Jose and another serial entrepreneur in France here got together and they started Pixium Vision. They licensed in a technology from a German company, which was actually the basis for our first generation tech, a company called IMI Intelligent Medical Implants out of Germany. And then they eventually acquired the company and took with it some of the employees. And that's how Pixium really started back in 20, 2011. And then fast forward over time, the company went public here on the French Stock Exchange. They raised you know, a significant amount of money to really accelerate the development of their first gen 
platform technology called Iris. And then in 2019 is when I got involved and brought on board. And, and that was really to accelerate sort of the second generation technology, which we'll talk about a bit later, which we call Prima, which really was a collaboration with Pixium and Stanford University. And so they, you know, the, the board brought me on board to uh, accelerate the development of that technology, to get it through the market access process, and then eventually to commercialize it in Europe and, and the US. And that was in 2019 you joined, right? Yep. Got it. In May of 2019, I was still living in the Bay Area and I was commuting back and forth between San Fran and Paris. And then, you know, after every two weeks of doing that for three months, it gets a bit old. We just, we moved here because this is where our headquarters are. So not a bad place to be forced to relocate to Paris, France, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Let's jump right into the tech. I think you've got a, um, an animation queued up that we can go ahead and and walk through and then, and then we can kind of go into the technology real time with some of the demo devices you got. I'm sure you can see my screen, right? Yeah, we can. All right. All right, great. So uh, I'm going to walk through it. So what I'm going to show you here now is an animation of how the system functions, and I'll talk through it. Basically, we're targeting dry AMD. So dry AMD is a disease where the photoreceptor cells no longer function. What we do is we create a small incision in the retina, and we inject our Prima implant in the subretinal space. We apply gas or oil to reattach the retina, and then you know four weeks later, when the retina is healed, the patient comes back, and we put a pair of these smart glasses on them. The smart glasses then will actually capture the surrounding images and it'll, it'll loop through again because uh, you know, I'll be able to continue explaining it. And so that, that streaming video will be captured and simplified and sent to a small pocket computer, which I'll show you here in a moment, which will then convert that image into a signal which is projected, as you'll see here in a second, through the glasses onto the implant in the back of the eye. And the implant will convert that signal into an electrical stimulus, which is sent to the brain, and then the patient will perceive the image we're creating for them. So at the beginning, when you said sort of deep tech meets med tech meets neurotech, that's exactly what we do with the system. You know, the implant takes the place of these photoreceptor cells in the retina, which aren't working properly, and uh, it converts signals into electrical stimulus, which can be perceived by the brain. So here in this video animation, you've seen essentially the surgical procedure and the process that I, I just described. What's the key component to that? As I understand it, it's the light source. Obviously, the implant is what's fixing the problem within the eye, which is a lack of, lack of stimulation in that nerve, right? But the light source that you guys deliver is a really specific light source that enables that whole process to take place, correct? Exactly. So I think I think what you're kind of touching on is what's sort of the real secret sauce in the technology itself, right? So, and I think that's threefold, I'd say. First, if we talk about the implant itself, the design of the implant, which perhaps I can show you real quick great. in real time. So here you can see the implant. It's on the middle of that screen right there. It's, it's like a two little wafer. Yeah, exactly. It's two by two millimeters in size, and it's thinner than a human hair. 
and it has 378 independent functioning electrodes. So you saw in my animation, these electrodes light up when you shoot light onto it, right? And so the secret sauce in the implant itself is the number of electrodes, the design of the electrodes, and the ability for each one of the electrodes to function independently. So whatever signal we send the electrode, each one is able to convert that into a specific signal. So that's wow. one aspect of the secret sauce. The other aspect is our ability to take large bits of data in the form of images, streaming images, and compress them and then have our algorithms, which are on the pocket processor, and I'll show you that in just a moment, have the algorithms in the pocket computer or processor take that simplified image and focus in on the intelligent parts of the scene that we want the uh, person to see. So, so it takes away the noise. Takes away all the noise. So image processing, image capture, image simplification, that's the second part of the secret sauce. And then the third part is then taking that simplified image in a controlled fashion, converting it to light, as you mentioned, and then in a very deliberate fashion, projecting that light through the pupil as controlled as uh, it can be, and then targeting specific electrodes on the implant with this simplified image. And so when you wow. combine all three of these aspects together or proprietary know-how or the ability for the system, the functioning of the system together, you then get a very controlled image projection into the visual cortex of the brain, which the brain is then able to perceive these visual stimuli or phosphenes, you know, there are different ways that we call this, and then convert them into such a way that the patient then can perceive the image we're creating for them. Wow. So if, if a patient's, this is incredible, if a patient's like reading, do they see, would they see, you know, like if they're reading a Kindle, would they see all of the text or would they just read word by word as they were going through? How would the images process? So basically, there is a, a field of view of roughly 12 degrees. And so, but what does that mean? So I think maybe what might be helpful is I actually can show you a patient that is doing a task and then you can see on the computer screen in the video, I'll show you exactly the field of view of the implant and what the patient perceives. So would you like to... That would be incredible. See that? Yeah. Okay, great. So yeah. just give me a second. I gotta. I'm gonna. I didn't pull it up yet, yeah. but I, I think it'll help yeah. explain. That would be. That would be awesome. What I'm going to show you here in just a second is an individual that is going to read a weather forecast. And keep in mind, this patient is legally blind. Okay, so without the device, they couldn't do any of this. So then I'll explain ahead of time. What you're going to see is is a person going through a task where she is going to read a weather forecast. And what, what I'll show you is the patient, of course, is anatomized because they're in a clinical trial. We can't show them. Their voice is right. also anatomized. But what you'll see is the screen, and you'll see on the left side of the screen what the camera is capturing, so what the patient is looking at. And then on the right side of the screen, you'll see what the implant is receiving. So what the implant wow. receives is a good surrogate for what the patient sees. Yep. So that, that will answer this, this part of your, your question. Perfect. So here you go. It's a reading forecast table. So on the right, you can see what the implant is receiving. So this is the speed at which the patient's able to read. Wow. So the right is what the patient sees? Wow. And Tuesday, she that. sees 
What's the weather on Tuesday? Look at that. It's the 13th. No, it's not the 13th. <laughs> <laughs> so wow. that's the perfect example of what the patients can do and see. Now, remember, without these other uh, glasses, they can't do any can't of see anything. Yeah. They got to say, what, how do I dress today? What's the weather like? <laughs> so, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ask Alexa, I guess. And hope yeah, ask right. Exactly. And are the images solely in black and white at this point or, or? Yeah, they're solely in black and white. So what's interesting to know is I think as humans, inherent in the cellular level of the retina, we can see red, green, and blue, but then everything, every other color is learned, right? When you're a kid, oh. the teacher says, oh, this is yellow. And now you learn that that's yellow, right? So right. inherent in the retina is only red, green, and, and blue. Got it. And Got so, it. yeah, right now we're a black and white contrasted because that's all the patient needs for the tasks that they're doing with respect to sort of reading and activities of daily living or even facial traits, for instance. If you think about looking at somebody's face, it's pretty monotone, right? There's not a lot of color in it, but we're able to create through the software the ability to enhance contrast. So for instance, if I'm looking at you, Mike, I don't know whether your eyes are open or I wouldn't know if you whether your eyes are open or closed. When we put the glasses on, and maybe I can show you this here, right? I'll I'll, yeah. I'll put these on so you can see the glasses. So now I have the glasses on, and then I switch the system on. I push this button. I switch the system on. So now it's going to start capturing the image of what I'm looking at. So I'm looking at you now on the screen, right? I have AMD. It affects both eyes. I might be able to see a little bit better in the left eye, but maybe not. The implant is in my right eye and I can see the periphery, but I can't really tell what's going on in front of me. So the camera will then capture this and then it will project the image on the implant. And what would I be able to see? Well, I'd probably, I, I wouldn't know necessarily that I'm looking at Mike, but I would know that I'm probably looking at a, a man who's got short hair, his eyes are open and his mouth is closed. Right. Right, because you can see the contrast between the pupils and the whites of the exactly, eyes. and the teeth, and the fact that yeah. your mouth is yes. And are you smiling? So somebody's though? smiling, yeah. So you can, you can read the room. Exactly. Now the ultimate goal for us, and then I'll I'll take these off, although I, they're quite comfortable to wear. The ultimate goal for us is to eventually have the ability to say, "Oh, hey, Mike, how you doing?" Yeah, yeah. Once you refine the technology. Yes, exactly. That's the next next generation. Yeah. That's incredible. That is incredible. You said ret retinal pigmentosa. Is there any other, is this indicated? What are the use cases for it? Is it uh, indicated for anybody with blindness at this point? Or is there a specific subset of those patients that it's it's indicated for? Think of it this way. Any disease where the optic nerve is intact, the visual cortex is functioning, and the more anterior layer of the retina is still functioning. So what is included in that? It's age-related macular degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa, Stargardt's disease, rod cone dystrophies. Those are the main target indications where this technology would work and potentially bring benefit to patients. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. What's the 
total addressable market for it, do you think? It, yeah. So if we, if we just talk dry AMD, let's just talk that because that's the biggest. The big one, yeah. So worldwide, there are 160 million patients that have dry AMD. But thank goodness, most of them are early stage. They have some vision loss, but they can get by with glasses, right? For just regular right. corrective lenses. If we look at the first geographies where we're looking to get approval, it's Europe and the US. So I'll, I'll, I'll narrow that down. In Europe and the US, those patients that have what we call geographic atrophy, which is the advanced form of dry AMD, there are roughly 5 million patients in prevalence in the large countries in Europe and the US with that form of dry AMD. And I'll, maybe I can put it in perspective for the listeners. So recently there was a drug approved in the US and Apelis is the name of the company, Sephora is the name of the drug. And that drug is the first approved therapy for geographic atrophy, right? So what I mean by that is it's advanced dry AMD. And if you were to look at the macula under an x-ray image, an OCT, we'll call it, you would be able to see a physical defect on the macula, right? So I'm talking about that stage of the disease. That drug actually was approved to slow down the progression of geographic atrophy, right? Not to cure the disease, nor to reverse the course of the disease, to slow it down. And I think in their literature, I'd have to look, but I think in their clinical literature, they showed over two years after monthly injections on average, they slowed down the progression of the disease by three months. Now they treat patients up to a visual acuity of 2,300. Why am I telling you this? Because 5 million patients in Europe and the US that have geographic atrophy, but we intervene in the stage of the disease after the patient progresses beyond 2300. So if you can imagine what would happen is they would be diagnosed by their ophthalmologist. They would be referred to a retinal specialist for monitoring of the 160 million, roughly 9% will progress to blindness, right? So of the 5 million that I mentioned, roughly nine to 10% of those will progress to blindness. And then when they, when they do, they would progress beyond 2300. And that's the point of time in which our therapy would intervene. So that's when we would implant them with Prima. So if we look at the 5 million, those that have advanced dry AMD with geographic atrophy that could benefit from an implant, roughly a million patients in the US and Europe. And then those that are in the sweet spot of our therapy, so worse than 2,300, roughly 245,000 patients. That's in prevalence. And then every year, roughly 22,000 new patients are being diagnosed at, with the phase of the disease that's worse than 2,300, where we could bring some benefit. Yeah, so they're constant, it's con- you're constantly rolling new patients yeah. into that subset. Yeah, yeah. We didn't talk about this before, but what's the procedure like? Is it, is it, I mean, most of these ophthalmic procedures are eloquently simple from the standpoint of insertion of the implant. What's that like? First of all, a retinal surgeon would do the procedure, right? And so if you think about retinal surgery, you know, they do different types, of course, of surgical interventions, but one that's very common that they do is retinal detachment surgery. My dad had it. Yeah. 
Yeah. So if you think about retinal detachment surgery, they have to do a sclerotomy, right? They, they create a small incision in the sclera. They go into the retinal space. They do a vitrectomy. So they'll remove the vitreous. Yeah. And then once the vitreous is removed, they will apply, you know, they'll make sure that the, the retina is properly aligned. And then they will apply either silicon oil or gas to keep the retina pressure against the retina so that it will heal and reattach over a roughly four week period of time. It's a gas bubble, right? That they apply. Yeah. It's either silicon oil or gas bubble depends on the preference and then the type of the the reason for the retinal detachment. And the, you know, there are other reasons why if there's bleeding or not bleeding, but anyway, it's either silicon oil, right? Or gas. And then what will happen is if you think about our surgery, it's think about what I just described as retinal detachment surgery. However, there are two additional steps in our surgery, right? So the two additional steps are we have to create the retinal detachment because the patient doesn't have one. And the reason we have to create it is we need room to inject our implant, right? So, so we're going to do what every retinal surgeon has learned their whole lives never to do, and that is cut the (laughs) retina. Okay. So once we get them over that obstacle, which Believe it or not, we've demonstrated that you can cut the retina and do it very successfully and not damage it and, and then eventually reattach it. So the first difference is we cut the retina, we create the detachment. And the second difference is we're injecting an implant, right? In retinal detachment surgery, there is no implant. Yeah. But other than that, the steps are essentially the same. Got it. So, so the learning curve for the surgeon is how to create the incision in the proper access so that when you deliver the implant, it's aligned properly when you inject it, right? So that's take some learning. And then the other is how do you create, what's the best way to create the retinal detachment, right? So they'll inject some fluid and create a little bleb, we call it. So they'll, they'll kind of elevate, you know, a little bit the retina and then they'll create a little space and then they, they go in And very delicately and elegantly, as you said, they'll create a small incision to separate the retina so that we can inject the implant. And maybe the last point I'd mention is, you know, the learning curve is roughly three to five surgeries. After that, the surgeon feels proficient. We go through a series of training where they'll be in order to be certified for prima surgery, right? We have to certify them. They will go through a didactic session. They'll learn basically how do you do the procedure kind of like you would read in the textbook they'll get pearls and do's and don'ts and then we'll give them artificial retina models so that they'll practice and then they'll usually do an animal surgery so we'll take them into a pig lab similar to the way general surgeons train for laparoscopy, laparoscopy. right the, yeah yep. only we do it on pig eyes and then they'll operate on two eyes and then they'll go and do their first patient usually with a proctor that's either assisting remotely or in the operating room next to them. That's the process. And then usually after five surgeries, they're proficient and certified and they can do what they need to. Yeah. It doesn't sound like too much of a, of a technique change other than just like you said, the detaching the retina and then learning how to, I I would think the positioning of the implants, the, you know, kind of the money shot of that, of the procedure, right? If you, if you don't get that position correctly, then it's not going to receive the the images properly. So absolutely. Yeah. So this is super interesting. How long does the procedure take? On average, I believe in our clinical study today, we're roughly an hour and 40 minutes, I think. Wow. These patients must be so excited. And it can be done under local anesthesia in an outpatient setting. 
I mean, I think the surgeons, in all fairness, prefer to do it under general because it's the retina, you're operating near the optic nerve, you know, it's in a small confined space. And so when the patient's under, they have full control. But if the patient has comorbidities that wouldn't clear them for general surgery, because it's an older patient population, at least with dry, dry MD, we have done procedures under local anesthesia and, and they, they can do it. So. That's incredible. There's other companies that have tried to solve restoration of sight. What made this technology so much drastically different and, and more successful than the, than the others that have tried to, to solve for the, that problem? I think it's probably part technology related, part surgical procedure related. So the other the other technologies, including Iris, our first generation technology, but Argus, if you think about Second Sight, Argus, yep, yep, that was Intelligent Medical, the German company, you know, others. These were fairly large implants, right? I mean, you're not talking about what I showed you, this two by right. two millimeter. I mean, you're talking about an implant that probably took up roughly the size of this black, you know, the, the black frame here I'm, yeah, I'm holding, yeah, yeah. maybe a little bit smaller. And, and so what would happen is you would have to sew a captor on the ocular globe, and then you'd have to deliver the energy that's been captured through a small wire or somehow get it into the subretinal or epiretinal space onto the implant. So, you know, you have a wired stitched in device that's large. There were a lot, the surgical times could be up to four hours. There were a lot of comorbidities associated with the surgery, a lot of adverse events and things like that. So the first improvement is the fact that we were able to shrink down our yeah. implant to something that can be- Miniaturization of the, of the implant, yeah. And inject it in the subretinal space. That's first. Second, also on the implant is we could make such a small footprint and we could do so because we have proprietary and patented coding technologies and processes that allow us to have the leads or the electrodes yep. protected from the fluid environment in a very low profile coating. So you don't need these large, bulky, like you think neurostim devices like you see in the brain or previously yeah, in the yeah, eye, right? Yeah. So, so that allows for low profile. That's the second probably big difference. The third is that we have 368 378, sorry, independent functioning electrodes. So you have a lot of electrodes that can then stimulate quite a few cell, ganglion yeah, cells yeah, in yeah, the retina, yeah, yeah. which allows for recreation of more detailed vision. And then I think lastly, it's all of the know-how, the algorithms, the artificial intelligence libraries that we've created so that the system is smart enough to take large amounts of data, like I described before, and, and, and these large volume images, and shrink them down and point to exactly what the patient needs to see. So there's none of this noise in the background, because then it would become very difficult for them to decipher what it was they're looking at. That they need to look at. Exactly. Yeah. 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 No, it's, you guys have, it's, it's clearly, this has been a well thought out process. Where is it at in, in regards to regulation? I know you guys are pursuing both FDA and MDR you guys have been kind of on the on the cutting edge of this MDR thing, right? Yeah. So we actually started the request for beginning our final pivotal study in Europe, which is the stage we're at now, back when the MDR was coming together in 2020, end of 2020, you know, 
2021. And so I think we were one of the first class three implantable devices in Europe to actually go through the new MDR process as it was transitioning. I'm happy to report that we received approval, uh, of course, to begin our pivotal study from six competent authorities in Europe under the MDR. And of course, we started our study, we completed enrollment of all patients in the study, and we are now in the observational phase of our European study. So we expect to have data that we will present, top-line data, to the markets sometime in Q1 of 24. So right now, there's the risk in the clinical data recruitment is gone because all patients are recruited and implanted. And then we will file CE mark in 24, and then we expect to be commercial in Europe in sometime in 25, depending on how long it takes for the notified body to adjudicate the dossier. So that's where we are in Europe. And then, of course, maybe what I should say is that approval to begin this study was based on early feasibility data that we had in Europe that we now, I think we have four publications and peer-reviewed journals that looked at safety, efficacy, and the ability for patients to combine natural peripheral vision and central prosthetic vision. We've published in Journal of Ophthalmology in the US, Nature, Nature Biomedical. We've published in several tier one peer-reviewed journals. And so, you know, that collective data, I gave the um, competent authorities comfort for us to begin our final pivotal study. And then regarding the US, we have an ongoing, what I would call sort of early feasibility equivalent in the US. We started that study, we implanted four patients, and then we had discussions with the FDA at the end of last year where we disclosed to them how we've been moving forward in our European pivotal study. We shared data with them, and based on our discussions, they deemed it that the company was ready to now go to our final pivotal studies. So they asked us And we did. We filed for breakthrough device designation. We received breakthrough device status back in March. That's great. Yeah, thanks. There's a big milestone for the company. I think it opens up, you know, facilitates a very open dialogue with the agency. And so now it's based on the breakthrough device designation that we're going into our final clinical phase in the U.S. So if all goes well. We plan on filing the IDE request at the end of this year, early next, and then we will begin our last study in the U.S. and figure similar timeframes as Europe. So we'll enroll for 12 months, we will follow patients for 12 months, and then we'll file the PMA, the PMA request for, for, for approval. So, yep, commercial in 25 in Europe and probably commercial in the U.S. sometime end of 26 into, I don't know, the first part of 27. That's fantastic. You know, it's one of the, this has got to be a, as much a passion project as a profit project for, for those that are over there, because I would think uh, there's a lot of iterative and incremental devices out there where, you know, are they going to allow a surgeon to perform a lap coli a little bit better? you know, or whatever it is, or maybe tweak a hernia, but this is to be able to restore sight in, in individuals that haven't had it, haven't had that, or have had it and lost it is, is an incredible gift. So I've got to, got to think it's a pretty mission driven patient centric culture over there for sure. It is. So yeah, thanks for recognizing that. I mean, the patients are at the heart of what we do. And I think the Prima project isn't faint of heart, 
you know, the implant design was was really, you know, started many years ago, even before we started working on it in 2013. You know, it, Stanford, it was developed in Daniel Palinker's lab out at Stanford, and they continue to work on the second generation implants, which eventually will get us to, oh, hey, there's Mike. You know, we see yeah. Mike 20 feet away, right? Or our grandkids or... Exactly. Or your yeah. pets. Parents. They all want, you know, everyone wants to see their pets, right? Yeah. Their grandkids, their pets. And so we need to be mission driven because think about the amount of time, the failures along the way, the amount of money that you have to raise. And then you see patients like the patient I just showed you who can read a weather forecast. Now for us, that yeah. doesn't mean anything. For her, that means everything. Yeah. Yeah. Or to be able to read a recipe or to or a children's book to your grandchild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a total game changer, total game changer. Yeah. No, it's neat, man. I want to be sensitive to time and get you out of here as promised, but I know you guys are doing a raise and I'd love to give you a little opportunity to talk about that for any potential investors that are out there, uh, venture capital or whatnot. If you want to share a little bit about what you guys have going on there, by all means, take the opportunity. Sure. I mean, the company is looking to raise money. You know, we went out publicly and we said, you know, the company will need 20 million to get us to the next major inflection point, which, as I said, is less than a, you know, a year away now where we'll have the data readout for our pivotal study in Europe. You know, it's a great opportunity for investors. When you think about it, the company's invested roughly, I think, 120 million now in getting our technology to where it is today. So any investor coming in would get the benefit of all that collective investment that went on before with very little clinical risk remaining. I mean, in Europe, it's only data, yeah. um, if you think about it. And then it's approval. And then and now so you're really talking about more commercial risk. So yeah. this is a great, great opportunity for investors that are driven by the mission, that believe in helping you know, solve a bold, bold problem, which is blindness and are looking to accompany others that are really just as driven and motivated by the mission. So, you know, more to come in the future as, I mean, we're a public company, right? So I can't say more than that, but um, yep. we'll be coming out hopefully in the next few weeks with more clarity on where we stand in that process. So being a publicly traded company, how do they classify the, those investments? It's, it, do they classify it as a series? Is it a series A, series B, or is it just a, it's debt, right? It's either debt or a private placement, right? Private oh, placement, yeah, yeah public okay. equity. So it's a pipe, debt, yeah. um, straight equity, right? I mean, it's, right. you, know, you know, you could buy shares in the open market if you wanted to. So yeah. there's Got several it. ways to structure such such a deal, yeah. yeah. Excellent. Well, listen, Lloyd, you know, big fan of what you guys are doing. I've enjoyed our conversations and uh, and learning more about it and, and certainly uh, want to have you, you guys back on and do an update once we get... Uh, once you get to the data launched and get the information back from the MDR, hopefully we can have you back on for a, a victory lap and, and get an update from you guys. But uh, really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show and, and look forward to following Pixium Vision moving forward. Thanks. I appreciate it, Mike. Thanks for having me. Good. That's it for this episode of The Bleeding Edge of Digital Health. We'll catch you guys next time. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in. Listen, if you enjoyed the show, please hit that subscribe button and leave us a review and rating. That'll let others know the show is definitely worth checking out. Also, if there's a product, company, or trend you'd like to see featured on the show, just shoot me an email. My address will be in the show notes. Take care and I'll catch you next time.